After these things, he saw a door open in heaven. You remember, go back to Revelation 3, 7, and 8, the church of Philadelphia. And um, just remember, Jesus said he can open a door that nobody can what? Shut and shut doors that nobody can open. John sees after these things, after the visions of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And there is a door open in heaven, and it's opened by, by God. So in Revelation 2 and 3, the church has been challenged to repent and to be faithful. And the next thing John does is he says, here's what's going on in heaven. Now, here's a question. Ask yourself, what would you be thinking if you were one of the seven churches? After you read this rebuke from Jesus or this praise, depending on your status, what might be going through your mind as you're reading Jesus' evaluation of your congregation? What do you think they probably were thinking about? you be thinking about? You get a letter with the church at Lehman Avenue. Jesus says the things were going right. Jesus says the things were going wrong. He says, if you don't repent, I'll remove your candlestick. But if you do, there's going to be this great reward. And then what will we probably be thinking about? something. <laughs> <laughs> probably thinking about what? Fixing the things that are wrong. Repenting. Yep. It says repenting. Getting our act together, would there be some sense of fear? Right after this, John says, the next thing you should probably be thinking about is heaven. And who's in heaven and what's going on there? John directs their attention away from themselves to heaven itself to say, hey, after these things, I saw a door open, and I want to show you some of the things that are taking place there. And so evidently what they needed more than anything else is this throne room vision from God. Notice how the things transpire. Look at verse 1. John says he looked, and there was a door standing open, in heaven, this probably goes back to, you think about Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 1, and a lot of what we're going to see today is based on some parts of Isaiah and Ezekiel, and we'll look at those passages. But um, John sees this vision. It has to be revealed to John. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the truest things in the world don't come to us by osmosis. God has to reveal those things to us and show them to us. We won't know those things otherwise. And it also says the best way to view the world is from heaven's point of view. John's going to see the truest realities, the deepest things from God's point of view in chapters 4 through 22. And the church, through John, is going to see these things and learn how they really ought to view their lives and live in response to what God's told them. Sometimes I've read the book of Revelation, maybe this has happened to you, and people get frustrated. And they say, why didn't John just tell us what we need to know and just make it plain to those of us that live in the real what? The real world. But the truth is, what John's about to show us is the realest world that exists. Nancy Guthrie calls heaven in her book on Revelation the center of the heart of the universe. This isn't the real world, guys. I know we think it is, but the reality is that we're pressing to where we're going to live in our forever home. That's the real world. And John's saying, hey, you're in temporary land here. Just live faithful. Be the person that God wants you to be. And then you are really going to the real world. So the things we're going to study about are fantasy land. And John's just kind of making up some things to encourage us as we get on in the real world. This is a temporary sojourn, and John's saying, as you try to push through, think about the things that I saw as God revealed them to me. Okay, verse 2, um, well, verse 1, there's a trumpet, and John said, come up here, and he'll be shown what will take place after this. This is the same voice that spoke to John in chapter 1 and verse 11 that told him about some of the things that were going to take place. And John's called up to, John's called up to heaven in verse 1. He saw the door standing open in heaven. In the Bible, heaven is used in several different ways. So sometimes when the Bible talks about heaven, it's talking about 
the place right above us in the atmosphere where the clouds are. Psalm 147 and verse 8 says, he covers the heavens with the clouds. And so sometimes when the Bible says heaven, it's talking about the sky right above us. But then there are other times when the Bible mentions heaven. Second way people in the ancient world would have thought about heaven is what we consider outer space, the galaxies. In Genesis 1.17, Moses says he created the heavens and the expanse of the heavens. And so sometimes the Bible is talking about the sky. Then there's another level where God sometimes communicates about outer space. But then there's what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 2, the third heaven. The third heaven is where God dwells. And the only people in the Bible, there's a very short list. And what you're going to see in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is what a lot of people think about heaven. What comes to a lot of people's mind when they talk about heaven, and sometimes even things we might envision or sing about, is not what John says. It's not what John focuses on. There's a short list of people that actually have this heavenly vision or experience, and that list would include people like John, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jesus, he's been there. That's about it. I mean, those are the only five people I really want to hear talk about what they saw in heaven. A lot of people have written books, they died and went to heaven, and they come back to earth and they realize, no, we lied about it. That didn't really happen. And what John's going to show us is how heaven actually is depicted from God's point of view. And so John says he saw heaven, the doors of heaven open up. And this would be important for Christians that are suffering because they needed to realize that John saw somebody who could fix their problems and who could save them and who could help them in ways that they couldn't be helped otherwise. Okay, let's see what John saw. Number one, John saw the world. <laughs> The word throne appears 47 times in the book of Revelation, but it's especially, so it's a key word in the book, but it's also a key in this section, in chapters 4 and 5. If you write in your Bible, maybe underline these. It appears several times right here in the heart of this section. So look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2. You're going to have throne twice in that verse, and then you're going to have it in verse 3. It'll be four times in verse 4. Throne appears twice in verse 5. Three times in verse 6. And verse 9, it appears, is twice in verse number 10 of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, you see throne in verse 1, verse 6, verse 7, verse 11, and verse 13. So John says, I saw a throne. Look at verse 2. I was in the spirit, and behold, there was a throne in heaven. But what else does John see in verse 2? He doesn't just see a throne. What else does he say that he saw? Sitting on the throne. Now, why does that matter? A lot of people in the world miss this. John saw a throne. But the throne John saw was occupied. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm in charge. I'm on the throne. John says somebody's already sitting in that seat. And God doesn't play musical chairs with anybody. It's his throne and only his throne. It's what Isaiah saw. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. He says, I was lifted up into a vision. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. And I saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated on his throne. Psalm 47 and verse 8. There's this picture of God dwelling on the throne. And in the Bible, when somebody's sitting on the throne, it means that they're sitting in a place of power, authority, and they're not up defending the throne because that's going to be their position forever. Imagine being a Christian in the first century. You're suffering at the hand of Domitian, and you realize Domitian's on the throne. And if we don't offer up sacrifices to him and serve him and worship him, we'll be persecuted. And then John says, yeah, but there's a heavenly throne, and Domitian doesn't sit on that throne. There's only one person who truly runs the world. Christians serve him, and so they actually have nothing to fear. John describes what he saw. Now, as we start getting into some of the symbols that John saw, here are a few things to keep in mind. Number one, John doesn't invent any of these things. Everything that John sees, from the visions to the four creatures to everything that John pictures, it's got some background in the Old Testament. That's number one. John's not going to introduce anything brand new. He's going to borrow images from the Hebrew Bible. Number two, 
John tells us what an image means sometimes, and when he does, we should just take John's word for it. If John says, I saw this, and it represents that, that's what the vision means. Number three, don't press the details too far and make the language absurd. It is apocalyptic literature, and everything that John says doesn't have to have a special meaning. And then the last thing is, some of the details or images we can't be sure about. And so all we can do is take an educated guess. John probably meant this. How does John describe the one on the throne? Who is God in verse 3? What do you see? What does John say? Verse 3, he says, the one that sat there had the appearance of what? He mentions three things. What's the first thing John mentions? Jasper, right? A reference probably to Revelation 21 and verse 11. In biblical times, Jasper was clear. John's going to say later, I saw the sea, and it was as clear as Jasper, at least a portion of it. Okay, so John saw Jasper. What else? Carnelian. Carnelian or Sardis, depending on your translation. And this would have been a reddish stone from Sardis. And then the last thing John saw was what? Yeah, he saw around the throne a rainbow, but the rainbow looked like a what? Like an emerald, which would have been green. So if you're in John's view, you're seeing a crystal jewel, clear, then you're seeing red and green, and it has the appearance of a rainbow. When you think about a rainbow, what comes to your mind? What might that be pointing to in the Bible? When you think about rainbow throughout Scripture, what do you think about? God's promise to do what? Never destroy the world. What John's about to talk about in verse chapters really 6 through 22 is about a lot of destruction, a lot of punishment, a lot of rebuke. And God's people would be helped by remembering, possibly through this image of the rainbow, that God always keeps his promises. That God is not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. God's faithful, just like he was in the covenant with Noah, Genesis 9, 11 through 17. He's going to be faithful to them. Trevor Longman, in his book on how to read Genesis, talks about the rainbow. And the word for rainbow in, in the Old Testament in Genesis 9 is the same word for a bow like you would use in battle. And I don't know, when you see the rainbow, you see how it's arched. And if it resembles a bow, the business end of the bow, where the damage can be done, is pointing toward heaven. And so when God makes the promise to Noah, he's saying, I'm keeping my promise to you, even at threat to my own life. Somebody says, God can't die. That's the point. He won't break his covenant. He will keep his word. Even if it costs him everything, he's not going to flood the world again. Well, John sees this vision, one sitting on the throne, and then there's this rainbow in heaven, this vision of who God is. And there probably are connections to all of these different colors, but in the end, it's just a picture of God being in control and his power. All right. Who are the 24 elders in verse 4? That was on your homework sheet. Who are these guys? Don't say like Russell, Kevin, David. No. Who are the 24 elders that John saw? The tribes of Israel, okay, possibly. Twelve apostles. Any other guesses or possibilities? Possibility of angels. And by the way, those are the three that most people say. So when it comes to the 24 elders, look at verse 4. John saw the throne, that's God's throne, and around it were 24 elders, or 24 thrones, excuse me, and on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white with golden crowns on their heads. So these are the options that most people come to. I'll tell you what I think it refers to in a minute and why, but here's the options. Number one, it's this idea of angels that represent the people of God. So these 24 angels probably represent a picture of God's people down through the centuries or represent the church in heaven. Option number two, the apostles, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel depicted in this vision of the 24 elders representing all of the saved. And then option number three, is it's a picture of the redeemed church of God and God's people. Now, I think it's option number three, and here's why. Notice what it says 
these individuals are wearing. Notice verse 4. They're clothed in what? White garments. Now go back to Revelation 2. Go to Revelation 2 and notice verse 26 and verse 27. Jeremy, can you read that? Revelation 2, 26 and 27. And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received my father from my father. Okay, so what I wanted was not the white garments there, but about them reigning with him. It says in verse 4, they're seated on these thrones, so they're reigning. And in Revelation 2, 26 and 27, Jesus says, hey, if you follow me, this will be your lot. They are in white garments, though. They are in white garments. Look at Revelation 4 and verse 4. They're clothed in white. Look at Revelation 3 and verse 5, though. What does Jesus promise to the church at Sardis if they conquer or overcome? Revelation 3, 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed in what? White garments. Okay, so they're reigning. Jesus promised what Jeremy just read. Individuals that overcome will reign. They'll be clothed in white garments. And what else are they wearing? Golden crowns. You don't even have to turn to this one. You know this reference, right? Be faithful until death, and I will give you the what? Crown of life. These individuals have all the things. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever read of angels wearing crowns or anything of that sort. They're reigning with God. Jesus promised the church that they would if they overcame. They're clothed in white. Jesus promised the church at Sardis, if you conquer, you'll be clothed in white. And they're also wearing crowns. This idea of being crowned, 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, Paul says, they work for a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Or James 1 and verse 12, blessed is the man that endures under temptation. When he's tried, he'll receive the crown of life. That's only and always been promised to the people of God. And so John probably sees this picture of the people of God in heaven reigning with him representatively. And then John describes their activity. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. From the throne came out flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, as it was, a sea of glass or crystal. This idea of rumbling and thundering, it just resembles God coming up and showing up. And whenever he appears, it's always loud. Do you ever go to some people's house and it's just always loud? And you think, how do they live here? I mean, they got the there's a lot of noise. The book of Revelation is the loudest book in the Bible. Over and over again, John's going to say, there was a loud voice. There was a loud sound, a lot of noise. Isaiah 29 and verse 6 talks about God coming in thunder. It just resembles God having the power and ability over the entire situation. What is the sea of glass all about? And I just want you to track with seeing it as we read throughout the book of Revelation. But John also saw before the throne, as it were, a sea of glass. What is that? Purity and perfection, possibly. Yep. What do we know about the sea from the Bible? And last week, Neil was teaching on Wednesday night from the book of Jonah. When you read about the sea in the Bible, what do you normally see taking place? A storm of some sort. But the sea here is of glass. This is John saying everything is under God's control. Even the sea, which in the ancient world is the most uncontrollable variable. Nobody can control the sea. And John says, before God, it's frozen like glass. It does exactly what God wants it to do. Even the sea is subject to him and submissive. John says, the one on the throne is completely in control. And then the last thing, who are the four living creatures? Look at verse 6. It says, Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. All right, so who are these creatures and what do they represent? 
Turn your Bible back to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel 1 and notice verse 5. From the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. Each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. They sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And their four, and the four had their faces and their wings this way. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left. And the four had the face of an eagle. Seems like John got that from Ezekiel. It's also in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 14 down through verse number 16. Go to Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel 10, 14 through 16. Everyone had four faces. The first was the face of the cherub, the second the face of a human, the third the face of a lion, the fourth the face of an eagle, and the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kabar Canal, and when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. So John sees this image that comes from Ezekiel, and then in Isaiah chapter 6, there are these heavenly creatures that Isaiah refers to as the seraphim, these burning ones that stand before the throne of God. These four living creatures probably represent angelic and angelic hosts, sometimes called the cherubim, sometimes called the seraphim in the Bible. You remember when Adam and Eve are pushed out of the garden? And then these angels, the cherubim, are sent to guard the tree of life, Genesis 3, 22 through 24. These are probably those heavenly creatures in the throne room of God, and they all represent something. A man, the face of an eagle, a lion, and an ox, and they all come before the presence and throne of God. Some people are troubled by this. What does it mean that they have eyes all around their head? What does that mean? All seeing? But who would that describe, all seeing? God. So maybe they're not all seen. They don't see everything. Have you ever said this about somebody? They did something nobody was looking. She's got eyes in the back of her what? Doesn't mean that she knows everything or he knows everything. It just means to be alert and attentive. And they probably are. These heavenly creatures, they do God's will. What does the Bible say about angels in Hebrews 1 and verse 14? What's their service and role toward us? They're sent forth as ministering spirits or servants. For those of us who are to be heirs of salvation, or Jesus in Matthew 18, he says about those in heaven, in, in heaven their angels always behold their face. God's heavenly court of angels do his bidding and do his business. In order to do that, they've got to be alert and attentive. And these have these eyes, I believe, so that they can see what's going on. Okay, what did they do? Can we get somebody to read Revelation 4, 8 through 11? What did John see them do? Revelation 4, 8 through 11. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest, they are not saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and worship him who lives forever. And cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. 
you know, people read this text and they can spend a lot of time, commentators, scholars, Bible students, who are these creatures? The creatures aren't as concerned with their identity as they were about the one who sits on the what? Wrong. Question, what are they doing in heaven? Worshiping. Worshiping who? What are they saying about him? Hold your hand in Revelation 4, 8, and if you don't have this cross-reference, just make your own. Go to Isaiah 6. Similar idea, Isaiah sees one seat on the throne, Isaiah 6 and verse 1, high and lifted up, he saw seraphim, they each had six wings, two covered their face, two covered their feet, and with two they did fly. First person that gets there, that's not embarrassed, read Isaiah 6 and verse 3. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Same idea, same image. Now, I want you to think about this. These folks in Revelation 4, verse 8, the 24 elders and the four living creatures cast their crowns before God, and verse 8 says, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. R.C. Sproul makes this comment, and I think it's worthy of note when we think about who God is. Nowhere in the Bible, ever, Genesis to Revelation, does it ever say about God, God is love, 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 though he is. The Bible never says God is forgiving, 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 though he is. For God is kind, kind, or you think of any superlative, any adjective to describe God, it never gets this thrice superlative cry, except God is holy, holy, holy. The only thing that's said about God in that way is God's holiness. What does it mean to be holy then? This is important because the Bible says in Leviticus 11.44 and later in 1 Peter 1.16, you be holy like what? So I need to figure out what that means. If I'm supposed to do this like God, then I need to figure out what it means. When you think about the holiness of God, what do you think it means to be holy? Righteousness. Pure? Righteousness. Righteousness? Perfect. Russell? Perfect. Perfect, yeah, I get perfect in his purity and his holiness. We could be perfect in the sinless way that God is, but yes, it does involve some amount of perfection on God's part. What else is holy? Holy being. Separate and corruptible because Okay, so it's an eternal and abiding quality with God, which is, is true about every quality that God possesses. Neil? Distinct and separate. Distinct and separate. Listen, you, you see the vision in heaven, you see 24 other thrones, living creatures, but see God's in a separate category. He's holy, holy, holy. He's not like the living creatures or like the 24 elders. He's separate and distinct. And so when God says to you and me, you be holy like I'm holy, God's saying, I want you to be separate from the world. I want you to be in a different category. Now stay in Revelation 4 and somebody tell me how long do these people cry this out about God in verse number, oh, where is it? Verse number 8. How long do they cry this out about God? Day and night. So God, holy, 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 and they cry this out day and night. I was reading this text this week and I thought, how, the way they praise and worship God, it's as if this is heavenly evangelism. Now, I know nobody in heaven needs to be converted, okay? But I think it's impressive that in heaven, their whole focus is on, isn't that what evangelism is all about? Who God is, why God's worthy, why we should serve and worship him. Jesus said in the model of prayer, we should pray this way. Your will be done on like it is where? What are they doing in heaven? When we think about worship, what we're going to do in a few minutes, we should take note of what we see taking place in heaven. Everything is about the one seated on the throne. Sometimes we think about heaven, and we've got a lot of ideas. People want to go golfing and skiing in heaven. Listen, I've got loved ones I want to see, and we think, I can't wait to get there to see, and I, I think that's important. I'm just telling you, that's not the most important part. The most important part about heaven, when you get there, 
you and I will be blown away by the one seated on the throne. That's what's going to matter. First and foremost is going to be, I can't believe I can finally see him. John says we will. Revelation 22, he's going to say in verse 4, we'll see him face to face. Jesus says we'll see him as he is. First John 3, 1 through 3. In their minds, the most important thing is the one on the throne, and he is holy, holy, holy. And they cry this out day and night. Now, just think about this. In heaven, heavenly beings, all day, what they say is, God's holy, holy, holy. Now, in your house, people that know you, why would they say you cry out day and night? I'm going to give you some possibility. I don't know, but these might be some. I'm busy. Not right now. I'm on the phone. If only we had more money. If we didn't have so many children. I hate my job. Is this pain ever going to go away? I left you a blank. And you might write in the blank and then show the person next to you if they live with you. And maybe they can tell you the truth about it. I don't know what you cry out day and night. But in heaven, what they're always saying is great things and awesome things about God. And we should be challenged in our speech to make sure what's said most from our lips is that God is holy, 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 worthy of worship and praise. The most prominent conversation in heaven is the worship of God. And if God wants his will done on earth, just like he wants it done in heaven and like it is done in heaven, we should adjust our speech, our focus, and our lives. And I know this is right because John's revealing it to people that are on earth to say, hey, you're on earth. Look what's going. Look at what's going on up there, and reorient your life to fix and match what you see taking place in heaven. Focus your gaze. Focus your heart on what's taking place in heaven. Now, why do they praise God? What do they say in verse number eleven? Why do they worship and praise God? Because He's worthy of worship. So last week, Dale preached on Psalm thirty-three and verse one, and the first verse says. Praise is fitting for the upright. It's right to worship and praise God. It just makes sense. But they give several reasons. What are the reasons that they give for God being worshipped? At least two. Worthy are you, O Lord, verse 11, to receive glory, honor, and power for what? He created everything and it was created for his purpose. God made everything that exists and God made it for himself. God created the world for his purpose and his glory. Genesis 1, when God steps back and he says in verse 31, it's very good. God's pleased. God did that for himself. Now, we are the byproduct of that. We are blessed as a result of what God made. But God made everything first and foremost for his own purpose, for his own use, usefulness. And we need to see creation that way. When you look around at creation, that's purpose and reason enough to praise God. All right. Chapter 5. Let's read chapter 5, and I'm just going to go fast and read verses 1 through oh, one through, nine, one through 8. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who is that? That's God. He had a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him that was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, 
So John sees again, and in the midst of the throne, there's one holding a book. I know some of y'all can't see that print. Sorry, you got to get it all on the slide. Man. <laughs> all right, so there's a scroll, just like in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2, 9 and 10, Ezekiel is given this scroll, a book of some sort. And the idea that it's sealed, what do you think that signifies? When you see a sealed document, what does that mean? What's normally in a sealed document? Important information. But the sealed nature of it means it can't be changed. It's set. When Daniel received his vision in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 26, the angel tells Daniel, seal up the book and don't show it to anybody because the time's not yet. Later on in the book of Revelation, John's going to be told, hey, open the seals and share this news because the time is soon to come. The idea that it's sealed means God's word and what's in this seal can't be changed, but also it's already predetermined. And Psalm 139 and verse 16 is a good passage that shows books in the Bible do sometimes talk about things that are going to happen in the future already being written down and contains, contains the information. Okay, is this scroll, what do you think, if you were reading this for the first time, is what's in this scroll good news for bad, God's people or bad news for God's people? What do you think? Would you be thinking, hey, John saw a book, we don't know what's in it, but what would you be thinking? Is this good news for the people of God or bad? This is not a trick question. <laughs> what is it? Good news. Good news. That's all God has for us. If you read the first three chapters, you know all God wants them to do, and I'm saying all, repent, get their act together, whatever else is coming, whatever plagues and punishment and disaster, he doesn't have an aim to them. They're blessed that they read aloud and keep the words of this prophecy, Revelation 1 and verse 3. So there's good news coming for them, and they search heaven and earth, and John don't even say under the earth to find somebody to open this seal, but what's the problem? They can't find it. Look at verse 2. It says, he saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open this, this scroll and break the seal. Now, you're reading Revelation. You just read Revelation chapter 4. For the first time, you saw that word worthy. Who would you be thinking is worthy to open the seal? If nobody else, who would you think based on what you've read so far? Who? God. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord. So this begs the question, why can't God open the seal? Right? Because John says, hey, we searched heaven and earth, and we can't find anybody worthy. But he just said that God was worthy, and here's probably the reason why. This scroll contains the justice and judgment of God that God's going to pour out on all the earth. If God just opens the seals himself and just lays everything out, God would cheapen his grace and his mercy. Somebody has to pay the price. God has to be just and the justifier, and somebody has to be the go-between, the mediator, and we know who that person is. It's Jesus Christ. And so God's not going to open this seal. He's going to leave that for somebody else. But when John doesn't see the seal being broken or anybody worthy, John weeps aloud. Why is John crying? In verse 4, why is John crying? What was that? No one's worthy? Yeah. And so if nobody's worthy, we're never going to learn this message. And if you're suffering, there's no relief. John's response, is it the right response or the wrong response initially? It is the best response. Sometimes I talk to atheists and agnostics, and they will say, listen, I don't believe in God. I don't believe God exists. And I'm fine with that. And I'll say to them, okay, if God doesn't exist... What do you think about like the evils of the world, all of the injustices that have happened, all of the suffering that people have experienced? If that's never going to be fixed and made right, everybody in the world should be having the response that John's having in Revelation 5 and verse 4. If this is as good as it gets and nobody can open the scroll for us and make things right, 
if there is no worthy one, open up God's seals and to say, look, justice is coming, punishment is coming, but also reward that we see at the end of the book of Revelation. If that can't be disclosed to people, if all you knew was what you see right now, the only response would be Revelation 5, 4, to weep and to weep loudly. If you're an atheist, if you're an unbeliever, if you're an agnostic, and you say, well, I just think the world is what it is, and this is how things are going to always be, the only proper and sensible response is to totally lose your mind. But of course, the opposite is also true. If you're a Christian and you know there is one worthy to open the seal, no matter what else happens, all will be made right. And so the angel tells John in verse 5, don't weep, because there is somebody who can open the seal. And who does John see? Or what does John see? He sees a lamb, and he describes the lamb using several terms. Look at Revelation 5 and notice verse 6. He saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, which are the seven spirits of God. In verse 5, he says this individual is from the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's probably from Genesis 49, 9, and 10, where Judah is described as the tribe from which peace will come from, for Israel. And then the root of David, Isaiah 11 and verse 1, and Isaiah 11 and verse 10. And so this is Jesus described. He's described as a lamb that had been slain, referring to his crucifixion on our behalf. John says he looks like he has been slain, right? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So Jesus isn't still slain. He's been raised from the dead, but the marks are still there as far as John sees in this vision. And these seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. What does the lamb do? Notice verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne. He took the scroll, and then Jesus receives worship just like God does. Now, when they sing to Jesus, let's read verse 9 down to the end of the chapter. They sing a new song, these heavenly creatures. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard in the throne, I looked and heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Why did they sing to Jesus in verse 9? Why did they sing to the Lamb? What does it say in verse 9? He is worthy because he's done what? God's worthy because he created everything and everything's for his purpose been created. But what is the purpose for Jesus' worship in verse number nine? He died in our place. Yep, he's worthy because he has been slain and he also ransomed people for God's purpose from every tribe and language. And what else has he done for us in verse 10? He made us kings and priests to God. You know, sometimes people try to make distinctions between Jesus and God. Our Jehovah's Witness friends say Jesus is on the lower level. I mean, he's a God, lowercase g, but he's not like capital G, the God in heaven. And then you've got sometimes people that say, okay, you've got the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're kind of in different camps, and we should pray to God and not pray to Jesus, and people get into these weird ideas. Revelation 4 and 5 won't let you get away from it. Because what John says is not only Jesus worshiped like God, but he's worthy to receive it. And he's right. What John's trying to show the church is the one that was just talking to you in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's not God Jr. 
He's not even God's son in the same way that you and I are God's son. He's God's son by right, by him earning it, and by his eternality. And here's the thing. Whatever you give to the Father, you should also give to the what? Son, look at John chapter 5. I know we've got five minutes. We've got enough time. John chapter 5, and notice what Jesus says in verse, we'll start at verse 22. John 5, 20, well, we'll start in 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just like they do what? Honor the same John, right? The same, he says he deserves the same honor. Look at verse 24, or the end of verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor who? The Father who sent him. Sometimes people say, well, look, I believe in God, I believe in a higher power. Not really so sure about Jesus. You can't have it both ways. Revelation 4 and 5 says, Jesus is divine, and he's worthy of the same worship that God is. This is just a nerd alert for people that want to see a chart like this. Some people don't care. But anyway, here are the similarities for Revelation 4 and 5. If you're looking at, okay, you lay both chapters open, what are the parallels? They both are worthy. Their worth and glory is described. First God and then Jesus. They both receive worship from the four living creatures and the 24 elders, both God and the Son. There's a hymn that starts out initially. There's a hymn of praise and worship. And then there's a narrative section where John's going to say, okay, Here's why these four, the four living creatures and the 24 elders are doing this. And then there's a second hymn of worship and praise. John pretty much does the same thing in both chapters with father and son to drive home this point to the church. The one on the throne is your heavenly father and all is going to be made right. And the one who's going to open these seals and reveal the rest of this revelation that I'm going to write down is your God, your king, but also your brother and your friend. And so he's worthy of worship as well. It's right to sing songs of praise to Jesus, just like the God. When he was born as a baby, before he had ever done anything, they came to the manger where he was laid, and they bowed down in worship. And we shouldn't stop doing that. He's still worthy of it. All right, now how do we hear and keep Revelation 4 and 5? Just remember this, that only God is worthy of worship. You've heard illustrations like this before. I don't think you need me to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, okay? I don't know if you've ever been to a sporting game. College football, basketball, football, baseball. When you go to those events, you see people from different backgrounds. They pay a lot of money to get there. They sit in uncomfortable seats and situations. Rain pours down on them. I've been. I love sports. But what it shows you is the human heart is hungry for glory and worship. You see people in thrall. They paint their faces. They do all kinds. Of, the team comes out. They cheer. And it sounds like, and it looks like, if you look close enough, exactly what's taking place in Revelation 4. They'll do anything to get there. They just are happy and all the focus is on say, the stadium or the throne. What I'm saying is, don't give anybody what rightly and only belongs to God. Sometimes we can do all of those things and then we come into an assembly and it's just kind of like, well, we're just kind of pushing through and going through the motions. But the book of Revelation says God is worthy of our worship and we ought to lay it on thick and we ought to give it to him just like he wants us to. Number two, everything revolves around the throne. Everything in life revolves around the one seated on the throne. Everybody's going to appear before that throne and be judged, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. And the Bible says that you and I can boldly approach that throne, Hebrews 4 and verse 16. I know there's a lot of thunder and lightning and power and all of that around the throne, but the hope for the Christian is you can waltz right into that presence based on what Jesus has done for us, and you don't have to tremble. You don't have to be afraid. 
because God actually invites us and wants us that close. You think about the people in Israel when they saw a manifestation of God. They said, Moses, you go and talk to him, not us. We'll die. Jesus says, you can come. You can come with me. And you don't have to be afraid. You've got to be reverent and respectful and honorable, but you don't have to tremble. Because everything around that throne is on your side. If you believe that all the powers in heaven were actually for you and working towards your success and your spiritual flourishing, it revolutionized your life. There's nothing this world will be able to do to dampen your joy. And John says, just keep thinking about the throne. Jesus is the only worthy one. He's the only one that was worthy and able to open the seals. And so if he's the lion and the lamb, he can be the lamb that saves us or the lion that judges us. That's our choice. John saw a lion and then he turned and he saw a lamb that was slain. And Jesus did that on our behalf. Then the last two. Uh, Charles Hodge was a preacher in Texas and he wrote a book about country philosophy. It's a little emotional book. And he has a story in there where he talks about the second mile. You remember Jesus says, if a man compels you to go one mile with him, you go how many? But that implies that you went the first mile first. I think sometimes in our Christianity, we think only about the second mile. I want to do this great thing. I want to do this great act of service. I want to go above and beyond and do this marvelous thing. And God wants us first to go the first mile. And a part of the first mile is worship God like he deserves to be Be a first mile Christian and then do the second mile. Don't look past the first one and stumble. Get the first mile right. Weekly worship and praising and honoring God. And then the last thing is remember that you are royalty and live like it. He died to make us a kingdom of priests to God and he redeems us. So none of us are second class citizens in the kingdom. Thanks for your time and attention this morning.